Chapter 5 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 5, A Visit to Sir Giles Mompesson's Habitation Near the Fleet. Allowing an interval of three or four months to elapse between the events last recorded and those about to be narrated, we shall now conduct the reader to a large, gloomy habitation near Fleet Bridge. At first view, this structure, with its stone walls, corner turrets, ponderous door, and barred windows, might be taken as part and parcel of the ancient prison existing in this locality. Such, however, was not the fact. The little river Fleet, whose muddy current was at that time open to view, flowed between the two buildings, and the grim and frowning mansion we propose to describe stood on the western bank, exactly opposite the gateway of the prison. Now, as no one had a stronger interest in the fleet prison than the owner of that gloomy house, inasmuch as he had lodged more persons within it than anyone ever did before him, it would almost seem that he had selected his abode for the purpose of watching over the safe custody of the numerous victims of his rapacity and tyranny. This was the general surmise, and it must be owned, there was ample warranty for it in his conduct. A loophole in the turret at the northeast angle of the house commanded the courts of the prison, and here Sir Giles Mompesson would frequently station himself to note what was going forward within the jail, and examine the looks and deportment of those kept by him in durance. Many a glance of hatred and defiance was thrown from these somber courts at the narrow aperture at which he was known to place himself but such regards only excited Sir Giles's derision. Many an imploring gesture was made to him, but these entreaties for compassion were equally disregarded. Being a particular friend of the warden of the fleet, and the jailers obeying him as they would have done their principal, he entered the prison when he pleased, and visited any ward he chose, at any hour of day or night. And though the unfortunate prisoners complained of the annoyance, and especially those to whom his presence was obnoxious, no redress could be obtained. He always appeared when least expected, and seemed to take a malicious pleasure in troubling those most anxious to avoid him. Nor was Sir Giles the only visitant to the prison. Clement Lanier was as frequently to be seen within its courts and wards as his master, and a similar understanding appeared to exist between him and the jailers. Hence, he was nearly as much an object of dread and dislike as Sir Giles himself and few saw the masked and shrouded figure of the spy approach them without misgiving. From the strange and unwarrantable influence exercised by Sir Giles and the promoter in the prison, they came at length to be considered as part of it, and matters were as frequently referred to them by the subordinate officers as to the warden. It was even supposed by some of the prisoners that a secret means of communication must exist between Sir Giles's habitation and the jail, but as both he and Lanier possessed keys of the wicket, such a contrivance was obviously unnecessary, and would have been dangerous, as it must have been found out at some time by those interested in the discovery. It has been shown, however, that in one way or other, Sir Giles had nearly as much to do with the management of the fleet prison as those to whom its governance was ostensibly committed, and that he could, if he thought proper, aggravate the sufferings of its unfortunate occupants without incurring any responsibility for his treatment of them. He looked upon the star chamber and the fleet as the means by which he could plunder society and stifle the cry of the oppressed, 
and it was his business to see that both machines were kept in good order and worked well. But to return to his habitation, its internal appearance corresponded with its forbidding exterior. The apartments were large, but cold and comfortless, and, with two or three exceptions, scantily furnished. Sumptuously decorated, these exceptional rooms presented a striking contrast to the rest of the house, but they were never opened, except on the occasion of some grand entertainment, a circumstance of rare occurrence. There was a large hall of entrance where Sir Giles's myrmidons were wont to assemble, with a great table in the midst of it, on which no victuals were ever placed, at least at the extortioner's expense, and a great fireplace where no fire ever burnt. From this a broad stone staircase mounted to the upper part of the house, and communicated by means of dusky corridors and narrow passages with the various apartments. A turnpike staircase connected the turret to which Sir Giles used to resort to reconnoitre the fleet prison with the lower part of the habitation, and similar corkscrew stairs existed in the other angles of the structure. When stationed at the loophole, little wrecked Sir Giles of the mighty cathedral that frowned upon him like the offended eye of heaven. His gaze was seldom raised toward St. Paul's, or if it were, he had no perception of the beauty or majesty of the ancient cathedral. The object of interest was immediately below him. The sternest realities of life were what he dealt with. He had no taste for the sublime or the beautiful. Sir Giles had just paid an inquisitorial visit, such as we have described, to the prison, and was returning homewards over Fleet Bridge when he encountered Sir Francis Mitchell, who was coming in quest of him, and they proceeded to his habitation together. Nothing beyond a slight greeting passed between them in the street, for Sir Giles was ever jealous of his slightest word being overheard, but he could see from his partner's manner that something had occurred to annoy and irritate him greatly. Sir Giles was in no respect changed since the reader last beheld him. Habited in the same suit of sables, he still wore the same mantle and the same plumed hat, and had the same long rapier by his side. His deportment, too, was as commanding as before, and his aspect as stern and menacing. Sir Francis, however, had not escaped the consequences naturally to be expected from the punishment inflicted upon him by the apprentices, being so rheumatic that he could scarcely walk, while a violent cough with which he was occasionally seized, and which took its date from the disastrous day referred to, and had never left him since, threatened to shake his feeble frame in pieces. This, added to the exasperation under which he was evidently laboring, was almost too much for him. Three months seemed to have placed as many years upon his head, or at all events to have taken a vast deal out of his constitution. But notwithstanding his increased infirmities and utter unfitness for the part he attempted to play, he still affected a youthful air, and still aped all the extravagances and absurdities in dress and manner of the gayest and youngest court coxcomb. He was still attired in silks and satins of the gaudiest hues, still carefully trimmed as to hair and beard, still redolent of perfumes. Not without exhibiting considerable impatience, Sir Giles was obliged to regulate his pace by the slow and tottering steps of his companion, and was more than once brought to a halt as the lungs of the latter were convulsively torn by his cough. But at last they reached the house, and entered the great hall where the Myrmidons were assembled, all of whom rose on their appearance and saluted them. There was Captain Blutter, with his braggart air, attended by some half-dozen Alsatian bullies, Lupo Volp, with his crafty looks, and the tip-staves, all, in short, were present, excepting Clement Lanier, and Sir Giles knew how to account for his absence. 
to the inquiries of Captain Blutter and his associates, whether they were likely to be required in any business that day, Sir Giles gave a doubtful answer, and placing some pieces of money in the Alsatian's hand, bade him repair, with his followers, to the Rose Tavern in Hanging Sword Court, and crush a flask or two of wine, and then return for orders, an injunction with which the captain willingly complied. To the tipstave Sir Giles made no observation, and bidding Lupo Volp hold himself in readiness for a summons, he passed on with his partner to an inner apartment. On Sir Francis gaining it, he sank into a chair and was again seized with a fit of coughing that threatened him with annihilation. When it ceased, he made an effort to commence the conversation, and Sir Giles, who had been pacing to and fro impatiently within the chamber, stopped to listen to him. "'You will wonder what business has brought me hither today, Sir Giles,' he said, "'and I will keep you no longer in suspense. I have been insulted, Sir Giles, grievously insulted.' "'By whom?' demanded the extortioner. "'By Sir Jocelyn Monchensey,' replied Sir Francis, shaking with passion." I have received a degrading insult from him today, which ought to be washed out with his blood. "'What hath he done to you?' inquired the other. "'I will tell you, Sir Giles. I chanced to see him in the courtyard of the palace of Whitehall, and there being several gallants nigh at hand, who I thought would take my part. Ah! Uh, ah! Uh, what a plaguy cough I have gotten, to be sure. But tis all owing to those cursed prentices. A moraine sees em. Your patience, sweet Sir Giles. I am coming to the point. Ah! Uh, ah! Uh, there it takes me again. Well, as I was saying, thinking the gallants with whom I was conversing would back me, and perceiving Monchensey approach us, I thought I might venture. Venture, repeated Sir Giles scornfully. Let not such a disgraceful word pass your lips. I mean, I thought I might take occasion to affront him, whereupon I cocked my hat fiercely, as I have seen you and Captain Blutter do, Sir Giles. Couple me not with the Alsatian, I pray of you, Sir Francis, observed the extortioner sharply. Your pardon, Sir Giles, your pardon. But as I was saying, I regarded him with a scowl, and tapped the hilt of my sword. And what think you the ruffinly fellow did? I almost blush at the bare relation of it. Firstly, he plucked off my hat, telling me I ought to stand bareheaded in the presence of gentlemen. Next, he tweaked my nose, and as I turned round to avoid him, he applied his foot, yes, his foot, to the back of my trunk hose. And well was it that the hose were stoutly wadded and quilted, fire and fury. Sir Giles, I cannot brook the indignity. And what was worse, the shameless gallants, who ought to have lent me aid, were ready to split their sides with laughter, and declared I had only gotten my due. When I could find utterance for very choler, I told the villain you would requite him, and he answered he would serve you in the same fashion whenever you crossed his path. Ha! said he so? cried Sir Giles, half drawing his sword, while his eyes flashed fire. We shall see whether he will make good his words. Yet no, revenge must not be accomplished in that way. I have already told you I am willing to let him pursue his present career undisturbed for a time, in order to make his fall the greater. I hold him in my hand and can crush him when I please. Then do not defer your purpose, Sir Giles, said Sir Francis, or I must take my own means of setting myself right with him. I cannot consent to sit down calmly under the provocation I have endured." "'And what will be the momentary gratification afforded by his death, if such you meditate?' returned Sir Giles. "'In comparison with hurling him down from the point he has gained, stripping him of all his honours, and of such wealth as he may have acquired, and plunging him into the fleet prison, where he will die by inches, and where you yourself may feast your eyes on his slow agonies.' "'That is true revenge, 
and you are but a novice in the art of vengeance if you think your plan equal to mine. It is for this, and this only, that I have spared him so long. I have suffered him to puff himself up with pride and insolence till he is ready to burst. But his day of reckoning is at hand, and then he shall pay off the long arrears he owes us. Well, Sir Giles, I am willing to leave the matter with you, said Sir Francis, but it is hard to be publicly insulted and have injurious epithets applied to you and not obtain immediate redress. I grant you it is so, rejoined Sir Giles, but you well know you are no match for him at the sword. If I am not, others are. Clement Lanier, for instance, cried Sir Francis. He has more than once arranged a quarrel for me. And were it an ordinary case, I would advise that the arrangement of this quarrel should be left to Lanier, said Sir Giles, or I myself would undertake it for you. But that were only half revenge. No, the work must be done completely, and the triumph you will gain in the end will amply compensate you for the delay. Be it so, then, replied Sir Francis. But before I quit the subject, I may remark that one thing perplexes me in the sudden rise of this upstart, and that is that he encounters no opposition from Buckingham. Even the king, I am told, has expressed his surprise that the jealous Marquis should view one who may turn out a rival with so much apparent complacency. It is because Buckingham has no fear of him, replied Sir Giles. He knows he has but to say the word, and the puppet brought forward by de Gondomar, for it is by him that Monchency is supported, will be instantly removed, but as he also knows that another would be set up, he is content to let him occupy the place for a time. Certus, if Monchency had more knowledge of the world, he would distrust him, said Sir Francis, because in my opinion Buckingham overacts his part and shows him too much attention. He invites him, as I am given to understand, to all his masks, banquets, and revels at York House, and even condescends to flatter him. Such conduct would awaken suspicion in any one save the object of it. I have told you Buckingham's motive, and therefore his conduct will no longer surprise you. Have you heard of the wager between de Gondomar and the Marquis, in consequence of which a trial of skill is to be made in the tilt-yard tomorrow? Monchency is to run against Buckingham, and I leave you to guess what the result will be. I myself am to be among the jousters. You! exclaimed Sir Francis. Even I, replied Sir Giles, with a smile of gratified vanity. Now mark me, Sir Francis, I have a surprise for you. It is not enough for me to hurl this aspiring youth from his proud position and cover him with disgrace. It is not enough to immure him in the fleet, but I will deprive him of his choicest treasure, of the object of his devoted affections. Aye, indeed, exclaimed Sir Francis. By my directions, Clement Lanier has kept constant watch over him, and has discovered that the young man's heart is fixed upon a maiden of great beauty named Aveline Calvary, daughter of the crazy Puritan who threatened the king's life some three or four months ago at Theobald's. I mind me of the circumstance, observed Sir Francis. This maiden lives in great seclusion with an elderly dame, but I have found out her retreat. I have said that Sir Jocelyn is enamored of her, and she is by no means insensible to his passion. But a bar exists to their happiness, Almost with his last breath, a promise was extorted from his daughter by Hugh Calvary, that if her hand should be claimed within a year by one to whom he had engaged her, but with whose name even she was wholly unacquainted, she would unhesitatingly give it to him. And will the claim be made? It will. And think you she will fulfill her promise? I am sure of it, 
a dying father's commands are sacred with one like her. Have you seen her, Sir Giles? Is she so very beautiful as represented? I have not yet seen her, but she will be here anon, and you can then judge for yourself. She here! exclaimed Sir Francis. By what magic will you bring her hither? By a spell that cannot fail in effect, replied Sir Giles with a grim smile. I have summoned her in her father's name. I have sent for her to tell her that her hand will be claimed. By whom? inquired Sir Francis. That is my secret, replied Sir Giles. At this juncture there was a tap at the door, and Sir Giles, telling the person without to enter, it was opened by Clement Lanier, wrapped in his long mantle, and with his countenance hidden by his mask. They are here, he said. The damsel and the elderly female, cried Sir Giles and receiving a response in the affirmative from the promoter, he bade him usher them in at once. The next moment, Aveline, attended by a decent-looking woman, somewhat stricken in years, entered the room. They were followed by Clement Lanier. The maiden was attired in deep mourning, and though looking very pale, her surpassing beauty produced a strong impression upon Sir Francis Mitchell, who instantly arose on seeing her, and made her a profound and, as he considered, courtly salutation. Without bestowing any attention on him, Aveline addressed herself to Sir Giles, whose look filled her with terror. "'Why have you sent for me, sir?' she demanded. "'I have sent for you, Aveline Calvary, to remind you of the promise made by you to your dying father,' he rejoined. "'Ah!' she exclaimed. "'Then my forebodings of ill are realized.' "'I know you consider that promise binding,' pursued Sir Giles, "'and it is only necessary for me to announce to you that, in a week from this time, your hand will be claimed in marriage. Alas, alas, she cried in accents of despair. But who will claim it? And how can the claim be substantiated? She added, recovering herself in some degree. You will learn at the time I have appointed, replied Sir Giles. And now, having given you notice to prepare for the fulfillment of an engagement solemnly contracted by your father, and as solemnly agreed to by yourself, I will no longer detain you. Aveline gazed at him with wonder and terror, and would have sought for some further explanation. But perceiving from the inflexible expression of his countenance that any appeal would be useless, she quitted the room with her companion. "'I would give half I possess to make that maiden mine,' cried Sir Francis, intoxicated with admiration of her beauty. "'Humph!' exclaimed Sir Giles. "'More difficult matters have been accomplished. Half your possessions, say you? She is not worth so much.' Assign to me your share of the Mountchensey estates, and she shall be yours. I will do it, Sir Giles, I will do it, cried the old usurer, eagerly. But you must prove to me first that you can make good your words. Pshaw! Have I ever deceived you, man? But rest easy, you shall be fully satisfied. Then call in Lupo Volp, and let him prepare the assignment at once, cried Sir Francis. I shall have a rare prize, and shall effectually revenge myself on this detested Mountchensey. End of chapter 5